0: so these guys had t- opportunities to say hey i've spent my time in hell i i should go home but they opted to stay with the regiment probably as you probably heard in a lot of a lot of soldiers it's the guy next to you that makes you want to stay that makes you fight
1: You're listening to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast. My name is Tatiana Fallon, and I'm your host. This podcast is run by the organization Stories Behind the Stars. This has nothing to do with Hollywood. We are telling the stories behind the stars that were given in World War II. For those of you who are not familiar, during World War II, when a service member was killed, the family received a banner with a gold star on it. We are telling the stories behind these stars. Our goal is to put them all 400,000 into a common database, which then we will build a smartphone app that will be searchable from any location where you can read the story behind the star. And you can really come to know the individual that died on D-Day and fought for our freedoms. This podcast is dedicated to telling those stories as we find them, as our researchers are doing this amazing research. You'll hear from researchers who are all volunteers from all across the country, and you'll hear their story, what brought them to the project, and then also the stories that they're finding. This is amazing content, and I really hope you enjoy this adventure. Welcome everybody to this episode of the podcast. Today we have Kevin McIntyre. Will you introduce yourself to us, Kevin, and, and tell us what brought you to this project?
0: Yeah, Tatiana, um, I actually uh, was invited by my niece. Uh, Her name is Emily Burnett, and uh, she's from Salt Lake City. Um, And um, she has a Mormon background, graduated from Brigham Young. And as you know, uh, Mormons are uh, into genealogy quite a bit. And um, she got involved uh, as a prior Ancestry.com employee. She was managing databases and stuff like that, doing programming. And uh, she saw this, um, I think it was called uh, Stories Behind the Stars at the time, and she decided that she wanted to get involved in it. And as she started writing some of the stories, she thought of me. Uh, and the reason why she thought of me is um, as her uncle, uh, I I was uh, in the Navy for about 26 years. And uh, I was a helicopter pilot. And she knew that I always had an interest in history. And so uh, she called me up and um, she actually came out here and we kind of talked about it. She said she could send me a link. Um, And that was in the May timeframe. And I've been just head deep into it ever since um, being kind of an amateur historian. And uh, my family background is, is military as well. I was actually a military brat. My, uh, Following my dad's footsteps, uh, he was in the army, uh, been, uh, was in the army for about 24 years. And I traveled all over the world before I was even 18 years old, lived in different countries. So I definitely had an interest in different cultures and history. And so I ended up joining the Navy and and doing the same thing.
1: So did you travel to any like places where World War II happened or was,
0: Actually, I did, Um, and uh, uh, the two main access powers, Germany, and I lived in Japan, and I, as a child, we were part of a a military, they called it an American Youth Association, they used to take us on bus tours through uh, the, you know, through the, the foreign country, so I got a chance to go to Nuremberg. Uh, for uh, a lot of the historical uh, tours of uh, where the Nazis had party had started, gone to Munich, uh, gone to Dachau. And then uh, when I was living as a kid in Japan, we got to go to Hiroshima. And I'm sure you know the significance of Hiroshima. Uh, Got to go to Okinawa, got to go to Taiwan. So I, I felt like I kind of had a privileged life by being able to see all these different places. And of course, that pricked my interest in the history and specifically World War II. That
1: is so cool. So you said you were in the Navy and you were a helicopter pilot. This may be me just being naive, but I didn't know that the Navy had helicopters.
0: Oh yes, oh yeah. In fact, um, uh, the helicopters for the Navy um, are used, uh, mostly in a defensive role, but, uh, it's, uh, the job I was in was anti-submarine warfare, and so we would be the aircraft that would be in front of the carriers while she was launching all the jets to do the strike missions, and the helicopters would put out a protective perimeter in front of the battle group, and we would put these long cables with a sonar transducer on the end of it about 1,500 feet in the water. And we would track the underwater area for submarines just in case they were going to try to attack the battle group. Oh,
1: yeah. Wow, that's so, that's so cool. I did not know that. So I'm glad you shared that. <laughs>
0: oh, no, well, yeah, anytime. I mean, it's uh yeah, it's a, uh, uh, the Navy has got so much capability. They've always said that why do you need the Army when you got the Navy, who already has the Marines, who's an amphibious land force? And of course, we do a lot of projection of of power all over the world. I mean, nobody else can do it but the Navy.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Navy is what really changed the world. I read this book about how after World War II we saw such an age of prosperity. It's because of the first time in history of the world, there was a Navy that was strong enough to make sure everybody had the opportunity to do free trade.
0: Absolutely. It
1: was like the biggest, like that's one of the biggest reasons why the whole world grew in prosperity was because of the size of the United States Navy. And I didn't really put that together, you know, like world war II enabled America to have a strong enough force to really help other nations get their shipping and, get people working together and and do it so they knew that they would be safe. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know that. Like, yeah, Yeah, I love doing this because I learned so much new stuff.
0: (laughs) It's it's hard uh, to keep that status, as you know. Even today, you have a lot of uh, regional, what they call regional hegemons, other countries like China and Russia, India, that also have navies that are very powerful within that region. So to be able to keep the whole world open like that, it's a day-to-day challenge, especially with uh, the cost of maintaining the Navy, uh, trying to train all of the, the sailors that have to keep current on all the new technologies. It, it, it is just uh, a maze. But as you said, sea power has basically controlled a lot of what the world is today. I mean, you think about, um, you know, the Greeks, had a very powerful navy at the time. The Romans had a powerful navy. What's the big uh, one? Uh, two, three hundred years ago, Britain was known for it. Was it, what do they say? They conquered almost uh, the entire world where the sun never set on British soil because they they owned so much, uh, you know, colonial areas. So yeah, it's uh, it makes it possible for us to keep the trade lanes open. Yeah, and that's all globalization, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So when you do your research, do you focus on Navy Fallen or do you kind of branch out wherever you're needed?
0: Well, uh, it's uh, interesting that when I first started, um, we were coming up on the D-Day anniversary. So in May, they were trying to get uh, a lot of the pieces written for the the Fallen and D-Day. So I took that on initially and, in fact, that that actually is some of the stories that I want to talk to you about because uh, very very interesting. Um, uh, some of the people that that got caught up in uh, you know in that whole uh, evolution in Normandy, but uh, the Navy played a big part in Normandy. A lot of people don't realize it was one of the largest invasion forces in the world. I mean, five thousand ships. There's nowhere in history that that's ever happened before. Even Okinawa uh, wasn't as big as, as the invasion of Normandy. So, yeah, it's funny how the Navy plays a pretty big enabling role in getting uh, the Army involved. And there's a history on that as well. Um, there was talk initially about having the Marines go across the Normandy. But the Army said, no, 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 we've got this one. Why don't you guys go ahead and take the Pacific Fleet area? You know, so... It was uh, definitely a, uh, you know, a, a uh, divided effort, and there was politics involved. Even the military, are politics involved, and so I think everybody got their piece of the pie. You know.
1: Yeah, I, I did an interview with uh, Jeff Biesemeyer, and he specializes on the the landing craft, oh, and yeah. and uh, what he uh, he just has so much knowledge about those. And I I did I think maybe it's just because they don't show as much footage of the ships going across or, or I don't, I don't really understand why people don't realize the magnitude of the sea power that it was involved because it's like, you see the like the famous photos of like people running onto the beach where like, how did they even get to the beach? And then like the hours of like the sea power hitting the coast. I mean, you know, the, the bombardment that happened prior to landing so that they could hopefully help with like not you know, knocking out a lot of the guns and things like that. Like, there's so many aspects that people just don't maybe get the whole picture. And that's kind of another reason why I like doing these and learning from so many different people is because I feel like you start to actually see the whole picture of an event. Everybody's you know, and part. it's
0: interesting, uh, yeah, uh, We getting back to the Navy again, a lot of people don't realize that the soldiers and sailors that were part of the uh, invasion of D-Day weren't the first Americans on the beach. Have you ever heard of UDT? I haven't. They had frogmen go and swim to the beach to see all the obstacles that were on the beach before the landing craft got there, the day before, the night before. Can you imagine going in, knowing their minds are everywhere, you know, there's steel frames for anti-tank uh, obstacles, uh, and they went in to do a, what they call a surface survey, so they could look at the surf and see what the train was like, what the the various uh, uh, you know obstacles were out there. You' kind of report back kind of an intelligence gathering. And a lot of people realize you know you got the seals that do a lot of that nowadays, and those were the you know the the what do they call the pregentors of the seal teams used to go do wow. those things.
1: That's so cool. So let's go ahead and hear some of those stories that you have prepared for us.
0: OK. Um, I'm going um, to start with some D-Day. Uh, there was a gentleman, 2nd uh, Lieutenant Charles W. Mellon. Um, what was so interesting about this, and this is one of the names that was thrown at me, right? I was, it was just a random draw. I never kind of asked for any specific names. Um, he uh, was born in 1918, uh, worked for his dad as an assistant sanitary engineer at one of the public schools, right? Um, so he enlisted in the Army, uh, one of the first draftees, right? Because people don't realize the didn't started like October 1940, right? That's when they actually started drafting people. And he enlisted in the Army in November 29th, 1940 in New York. Um, We don't have a lot of information on his enlisted time, but um, somewhere along the line, um, they decided they were gonna create a new unit in the Army. It was gonna be very, very unique. It was called the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. And um, I think probably because he had been in early uh, they were looking. They were short of officers. Uh, a lot of people don't realize uh, how small the American army was at the time. I've got a personal story. My grandfather was in that situation where he was commissioned as a ensign in the Navy, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. Well, this guy uh, was commissioned uh, as a second lieutenant in the army, and he volunteered to go into this 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. To make a long story short, he ended up going um, to a specialized training at Camp uh, Toccoa, Georgia. And you may recognize some of this if you've seen some of the uh, historical uh, uh, television series called Band of Brothers. And uh, so he ended up uh, operating as a uh, second lieutenant, um and the 506 became very specialized in uh, not only parachuting, but they were they learned to be able to survive on the ground independently in small groups. And uh, in 1943, they were uh, shipped over to England, September 1943, in preps for the invasion of Europe. There have been a couple of different uh, plans. One was to try to do an invasion of the Balkans at one time when St. Churchill was trying to push that to try to get the Germans um, on, a, on a two-front war. And then they talked about, um, well, maybe we need to invade Italy. And in fact, that's what they ended up doing. Ended up going through Sicily and end up going uh, through uh, Salerno. Uh, But uh, this particular group got selected to go in on D-Day. And he was, he became assigned to uh, the 506th uh, Regimental Company. And it was a demolition team that he was part of, about 13 guys. And um, if you've looked at any of the historical uh, film uh, on D-Day and the preps for D-Day, Eisenhower went to go visit some of the paratroopers. And there were a couple of paratroopers that had shaved their head. And they shaved them in a mohawk style. They put war paint on Second Lieutenant Charles Millen was in charge of those guys. They were called the Filthy Thirteen. You may not know it, but the Dirty Dozen movie was based on the Filthy Thirteen. So anyhow, they went in early morning. One, one o'clock in the morning, and I can't remember how many paratroopers, but I think there were two divisions of paratroopers, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st, and his guys were assigned, the 506th Regiment was assigned to the 101st uh, Infant, uh, Airborne Division. They went in, and um, uh, the battalion that he went in was the 3rd Battalion, And out of all of the battalions that landed, the third uh, battalion was the only one that actually landed where it was supposed to. All the other ones, as you heard, were scattered all over the Normandy coast. And it was kind of uh, fortuitous that that actually happened because the Germans had not only flooded a lot of the swamplands, but... They knew where some of the weak points were, the bridges that may be taken over, and they reinforced them. And unfortunately, for the third battalion, the one that the second lieutenant Mellon went in, the Germans were waiting for. Them. The Germans almost wiped out the entire third battalion, almost killed them all, including the CO and, and the executive officer. And uh, Chuck Mellon was one of the casualties. He didn't survive. They found him a couple of days later. He'd been bandaged on his arms and his legs, but he—he he, he was dead. And, um, but, part of his battalion actually made it to their objective, and were successful. Believe it or not. So, um, I think that that's one of the guys that, um, you know, I never thought would be linked to one of my favorite shows, Band of Brothers. I love that series. And here this guy popped out of blue. I never even heard his name before. But I had heard about his unit because he'd been related to uh, Easy Company in the fact that they were in the Sister Battalion. The Easy Company, that was the Band of Brothers was in the second battalion. His was in the third. So I thought that was kind of kind of a neat uh, uh, storyline. Um
1: I also, think it's. Do you think since he was in charge that maybe it was his idea to shave the heads and and paint, or do I, I guess you will never know.
0: I, but, I don't think we'll ever know. You know, for an officer to kind of go with that—that's, you know, you don't know. It's kind of verboten. You don't normally go in that direction. You kind of let the men do what they're going to do. And these guys, you know, um, I wouldn't say they were criminals or anything. They just kind of a rough bunch. And their whole um, mentality was, I'm going to go in like uh, warriors and and we're going to kill as many Germans as we can. You know, uh, as much as we want to think that um, uh, World War II um, didn't have its prejudices, you know, a lot of Americans, uh, once the Germans, we started finding out how vicious they were, I mean, they they were anti-German. Uh, it's almost like the Japanese, except of course, Japanese. Um, we know that there was there was uh, prejudicial decisions on the Japanese because they look different than us. But yet we still end up using the Japanese in the European theater. Um, I'm sure there were people of German descent that were part of the soldiers who went in in Normandy. but I oh, think yeah, they were just, sure. you know it' was a different philosophy of of how to live and, and uh, they didn't they didn't want a government like the Nazis,
1: right. So, they, you said they were uh, a, distru- a destruction unit, so Demo- were- demolition. Demolition.
0: Yeah, yeah, so they would be the ones maybe go in and blow up a let's say a artillery battery or a bridge or something that would have been an impediment to the ar- uh, army troops coming across the beach.
1: So they the were main- trying to blow up those bridges so the tanks would wouldn't be able. That, to That get- that would be
0: a possibility, or they were there to try to secure it. So maybe they booby trap the area around it to keep it safe until until the troops from the amphibious landing show up.
1: Oh. I'm sorry, I just probably sound naive, but sometimes I'm just like, I don't know all the little details of, it's just to me, D-Day is like 1 million little things that had to happen in order for us to take, you know, a small, relatively small piece of land, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it
0: was actually pretty big, a lot bigger than the Calais coast, which was a lot closer to England, as, as you know. There was a there was a fence that was set up by the Brits in the United States. Um, General Patton was originally supposed to be the invasion force leader, and he was supposed to take them across Calais. And all the communications that the, the British put out were trying to convince the Germans that that's where the true attack was going to be. They never thought that Normandy was going to be the area because it was too far away and they thought they had it too well, uh, mined and, and defended.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's such a cool story. <laughs> it's kind of cool to like, you know, jump in and do a project and then get to tell a story of someone that, that you, you know, really like. <laughs> oh really yeah. Awesome.
0: Yeah. It, um, it, and, and that I'm kind of familiar with, you know, um, and that's one side of the story of, of, uh, the paratroopers, um, but uh, talk about an elite bunch. And, you know, a lot of them died drowning in swamps. I mean, uh, you know, they didn't have this, this glorious death that everybody was on, but they had to do that job. And I was telling you about the UDT guys, right, going in before the first wave. These guys went in that morning, 1 o'clock in the morning, completely isolated in some cases, trying to walk around and find other paratroopers, to try to get a viable force to go ahead and attack the Germans where they were weak. But if it hadn't been for them being spread all over the place, you know, not intentionally, it just kind of happened. But it actually completely confused the Germans on what was going on. So, interesting story.
1: I didn't realize that that actually was to the benefit of, of the Allied forces. You know that we just totally, the drop went everywhere. Yeah. And it actually was actually really beneficial for us.
0: Well, yeah, it was. There was a lot of things that just kind of stance that happened that actually benefited us. You know, and since I have got plenty of side stories for you, but, you know, we talked about uh, the uh, Navy artillery, the Navy guns, which absolutely massive guns. But, you know, when they looked at it, uh, you know, the post-invasion, the guns were not as effective as they could have been. And even the Air Force, you know, this is a combined attack against the coastline uh, defensive area that the Nazis held, you know, huge uh, uh, concrete bunkers and gun emplacements. A lot of them were knocked out. Not until the army showed up and all of a sudden, whoa, I thought we took care of these guys. And of course, you know, the probably the most uh, lethal weapon was the, uh, the German submachine gun very portable, high rate of fire, fire, and it was just wiping out soldiers left and right. And, 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 you know, you're in a vulnerable position coming across a flat beach, low tide, you're completely exposed, you got 200 yards to carry 80-pound packs on your back to make it to a beach. You know, you got a real good chance of getting killed. So
1: Yeah, that's amazing uh, that they did it.
0: I know. And, And, you know, I think some naivete, and, and some people probably realized that, that was gonna be the last day on earth. You know,
1: I was filling up gas the other day and this old man was filling up gas next to me and he couldn't figure out, they had changed something and he couldn't figure it out. And so I went over there and I was, I was like, can I help you figure this out? And then I look in the back of his car and the hat says D-Day uh, survivor or D-Day veteran. And I just like my jaw, I just dropped my jaw and I was like, oh my gosh. And I was just like, I can't believe I actually met somebody who was there. And I was like, You you were there on D Day. And he's like, Yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, thank you so much. And I think he was just so flustered and taken aback by everything. He's like, Yeah, yeah. And then I you know, I, I helped him fill his gas tank and let him go. But like to me it was a big deal because I'm like, that event was just like so you to just be in any part you participated was taxing in any yeah. way, you know, and yeah. it was just blown away that I actually like met somebody in my lifetime, even if it was just at the, the gas station.
0: <laughs> can you can you imagine the logistical um, plan that had to be developed? 5,000 ships, you had four or five different nationalities of troops going across, you had to communicate with. You had two to three air forces that had to coordinate everything at different, times and you had aircraft that had to come in at different altitudes you had to deconflict the aircraft coming in to do bombing runs with the naval artillery which could easily have hit the aircraft going uh then you had to you had to protect the sides of the invasion force from the german submarines do you remember the german submarines how lethal they were in the battle of atlantic i mean you had to quarter off that whole area uh the Germans had long-range rockets, the V-1, V-2 rockets. I mean, they they could have done a, a heck of a lot of damage. Yeah, there could have been a lot more killed on that day than, than what happened.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So do you have any other stories from D-Day, or have you moved? Uh, I do. Glad you asked.
0: Um, I have a private Charles Warren Tinsley. What amazed me about this guy is probably came across as, well, like almost all, I mean, just typical young Americans, um, you know, family not real rich. In some cases, they're they're probably just above the poverty line. A lot of them are farmers. And in those days, the families, they had large families because they needed to have the, the physical effort to be able to manage the farms. And, of course, what, what happened prior to World War II? the depression. So a lot of these kids, 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, working their way or trying to get out of the farm and trying to get a job. And not a lot of jobs going. I think it was like 25% unemployment at the time. And probably you know, the good jobs there weren't plenty of those at all. But here's a gentleman who came from Nebraska. He was working with his father who was a ditch irrigation manager being nice i mean you know he's out there digging irrigation ditches for farmers you know so they can go ahead and uh uh find a way to to um hydrate the crops and things like that um let's see uh february 23rd 1937 he ends up marrying a 16 year old gal vera josephine reed from north dakota they have two children The first one, uh, son Ray Lee, he dies the day after he's born, 1939. So, tough situation. Um, He ends up um, enlisting. So, October of 1940 is when they started the draft. He registered for the draft as a farmhand. And then, um, November 1941, his father passes away. So, Here he's kind of got to be the man of the family. December uh, 1st, 1942, he enlists in the Army, right? So that's a year after Pearl Harbor. And it's probably because, you know, he's trying to take care of his family. He's trying to manage the farm. Uh, He gets assigned to um, the 1st Infantry Division. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's the Big Red One. That's the patch. It's got a big red one on it very famous uh, division. Um, his He had a daughter who was born while he was overseas. So he never got to see her. He goes overseas in April 1943. Remember I was telling you about those invasion points? Well, he ended up being in the invasion of Sicily 1943. Private, he ends up getting the Silver Star for gallantry. That's like two or three uh, rings down from the Medal of Honor. So he's just a private. Um, they said he was a hero of the Sicilian battle uh, of the town of Triona, Italy, credited with uh, saving many lives by exposing himself to intense war and small arms fire while directing fire on a heavily entrenched Nazi unit on Dead Woman Hill. There's uh, quite a number of newspaper articles that I found on that. I was pretty amazed, but... Um, You don't think too much about these guys uh, going into Italy and and having a a lot of combat, but the the Germans by that time had taken over a lot of Italy, you know, because uh, the Italians were not into the fight. The other thing about the 1st Infantry Division is they tended to be the Army's amphibious division. So they were always in the front line going to the beach, which is not the safest place to be, you know, as you know. And um, in a, anyhow, he ended up – so here's a hero. He ends up being assigned to the Normandy invasion with his unit. And unfortunately, luck of the draw, he gets assigned to Omaha Beach. So they go in, and did you ever see the movie Saving Private Ryan? This is the same beach that they filmed Saving Private Ryan. And he went in on that beach. And of course, he was killed, probably in some of the lead elements that went on the beach. I mean, it was just ferocious fighting. And, and until you got enough soldiers to kind of distract some of the defenders, um, it was pretty much a, a tricky shoot. So he didn't survive. Um, And the newspapers, when they finally got the report about the casualties, which, by the way, a lot of the casualty reports didn't get publicized right off the bat. There was a certain amount of propaganda about not letting the enemy know that they were defeating us or that they were killing a lot of Americans. So a lot of those things were waiting three to four weeks before parents or families were even notified. But a lot of the newspapers say the Italian war hero did not survive that day. So what was interesting to me is this guy enlists in December 1942, and here we are in June of 1944. And he's already been to combat. In fact, a lot of these units, especially the 1st Infantry Division, they were in combat for two to three years. And as people were being killed, they just send replacements in. So um, – you know, I just thought of the the, the the drudge of warfare as an army foot soldier. The trenches, uh, the barricades, the houses that you have to clear, going house to house, hand-to-hand combat. And he's already paid his price in Italy, but he gets to go to Normandy as a, you know, <laughs> he doesn't well, get to go home. it's crazy,
1: too, because he already... Not only did he fight in in Italy, but he was awarded the Silver Star. So you know that he did, you know, something above and beyond things. what other, you know, soldiers were doing. So you think that we be like, oh, you did your part. You're good now. But it's like, no, you're really good at, you know, being a, a man of action and valor. So let's put you in the thick of it again. You know, like, yeah. it's just amazing. And it sounds to me, though, like that's kind of maybe who he was, though, because, you know, he... He was already a father at a very young age. He was already taking care of his family. He was already like doing all these things that, you know, most kids in today's world wouldn't be able to do, you know? Yes.
0: He grew That's up That's a really, really good description. Well, and, you know, uh, what was, and, and, you know, the 1st Infantry Division did wonderful things in, in Normandy as well. But what I wanted to tell you here, that 16th Infantry Division, they were unique in that they were a very tightly knit team of warriors. Unusually high number of leaders and men who remained with the regiment throughout the war, and they were most of the time the amphibious assault regiment assigned. He said many men of the 16th Infantry Regiment were eligible to return home on points by the end of the Sicilian campaign, yet a large number remained with the regiment all the way through to the end of the war in Europe in May 1945. So these guys had time. Opportunities to say, "Hey, I've spent my time in hell. I I should go home," but they opted to stay with the regiment. Probably, as you probably heard, in a lot of a lot of soldiers, it's the guy next to you that makes you want to stay, that makes you fight, um, because you know you've built this brotherhood together. You've been through a lot. It's almost you're almost closer to these people than your wife and your family because. It's a life and death situation um, that most families don't have to experience like that. So kind of talk to the uniqueness of the military service, you know, and specifically to the greatest generation. These guys were absolutely dedicated.
1: It's beautiful. It's hard not to feel like emotional, though, because you know that he had so much more on the line than maybe some of these other men, you know, and... He, he probably had enough points to go home, but maybe in his head he was just like, "I I have to stay for this commitment I made," you know.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. But you you know, uh, the I was thinking the same thing. Uh, mature family man, probably fathering a lot of these young eighteen nineteen year olds who are coming in who don't know anything, haven't been in combat or haven't uh, been in the army that long, and just feeling like that's. uh, a lot of responsibility that he has to take on.
1: Thank you so much for spending your time with us, listening to these amazing stories of these fallen heroes. If this is content you want to keep hearing, please consider sharing this podcast with others. The more we grow our listening base, the more people we can reach, the more impact we can have, the more volunteers we can find, and the more stories that get told. So if you like this content and you're enjoying what you're hearing, please follow us and share and find us on any social media platform you'll and and follow us there. And then most importantly, check us out at storesbehindthestars.org. Click the volunteer button and join the Star Core. Thank you.